Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks to uh, Chris for the welcome, to Twamba for praying for me and for us as we think about uh, this passage today. Uh, as Chris said, I'm a pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Kennett Square. If you've never heard of Kennett Square, uh, it's, uh, some of you may have heard of Longwood Gardens. It's we, one of the things that we're well known for. The other thing we're well known for is mushrooms. We consider ourselves the mushroom capital of the world. We grow about 55% of the nation's mushrooms, believe it or not. So you have probably eaten a Kennett Square mushroom, even if you didn't realize it. Uh, as you may be able to tell, I'm not originally from here. Uh, I'm originally, I grew up in Belfast, Northern Ireland, pastored in Ireland for quite a while. To my chagrin, I've lost quite a bit of my accent, but every now and then a word or phrase may creep out that uh, tells you that I'm not originally from here, but it, it's my delight to bring you God's word uh, this morning. Let me lead us in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I heard uh, that uh, the title of Central's current sermon series was The Good Life, I suspect that it conjured up uh, for me a rather different picture than it did for most, if not all of you, because I was immediately taken back some over, over 40 years now to growing up in Belfast and watching on our recently acquired new color television the BBC sitcom called, you guessed it, The Good Life. You may never have seen it or heard of it as it only ran for four seasons in the mid-1970s, but uh, be, believe it or not, in the UK's greatest sitcom poll, it was voted Britain's ninth favorite TV comedy of all time. And the, the TV comedy was about a middle-aged couple who on the 40th birthday of the husband decide that they've had enough of the rat race and they're going to turn their suburban home into a self-sufficient farm with pigs and chickens and crops. And that might all have been okay, except for their uppity and upwardly mobile next-door neighbors, Jerry and Margot Ledbetter, who saw themselves as much more upper middle class than middle class, and whose concept of the good life certainly did not include having scrawny chickens wandering around their neighbor's backyard. The comedy, I think, was quite funny, but it also was a, a reminder of how subjective our definition of the good life can be. For some, it's crops and livestock in the back garden. For others, it's the acquisition of stuff and invitations to cocktail parties to see and be seen. I wonder how you would define the good life. Through this series so far, Jason has been showing you how God in his grace and his kindness to us has laid out for us in the scriptures what life that is objectively good, as defined by our maker, looks like. And how in particular we can see that objectively good life in the story of David in the Old Testament. David is far from a perfect human being. There are admirable aspects to his life and his character, but there are also tragic and heartbreaking dimensions to it too. But through the lens of David's story, we get this really helpful picture of what the good life is, and indeed what it should be in our lives. And today we come to an episode in David's life which builds on Jason's sermon last week about friendship, and it highlights for us that the good life is a life that looks outward to others, not just in friendship, but also, as we'll see today, in compassion. 
We're going to work our way all the way through uh, 1 Samuel 30 this morning, and uh, we'll look at it under three headings this morning. First of all, the strength for compassion. Secondly, the eyes of compassion. And thirdly, the compassion of the gospel. Uh, I'm going to read in a moment the first 15 verses that you'll find in your order of service this morning. If you have a Bible uh, in the pew or with you, I'd encourage you to open that Bible up to the chapter so we can look at the entire chapter as we go through. You'll find it on page 251 in the Pew Bibles. But this is the word of the Lord. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They'd overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. And David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men. 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you to this band. This is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy and true, and it's given to us in love. So first, let's think about the strength for compassion. Let me just bring you briefly up to speed in David's story since last week's passage in 1 Samuel 18. Through all the intervening chapters, King Saul has this vendetta out against David, and he's still seeking to kill him. It's worthy of note that when you put 1 and Samuel together and you look at all the chapters that cover David's life, you, you, do, you make an interesting discovery that the writer of Samuel spends 20 chapters describing the life of David after he became king from 2 Samuel 5 on. But prior to that, he's already spent 20 chapters describing David's life before he becomes king. And through most of those 20 chapters, it's not a pretty picture. David's path to the throne involved living on the margins with no home, facing betrayal, unwanted hostility, and hatred. The majority of the David story of 1 Samuel is not the victorious David over Goliath, but David the fugitive. 
David on the run. Saul's obsession to eliminate David had turned into a nationwide manhunt, such that in the chapters leading up to our chapter, for not the first time, but the second time, David has fled from Israel into the land of the Philistines to get some relief from Saul's pursuit of him. Now, just consider that for a moment. David, the man who had killed Goliath, the hero of the Philistines, has decided that his best hope for survival is to go into the land of the Philistines. You know when that kind of scenario happens in your life that things are not going terribly well. Well, miraculously, on both, at both occasions, both the first and the second, it actually works out. On his second visit to Philistia, David stays there for 16 months. He's actually appointed as the, uh, the bodyguard of the king, King Achish. His men and their families are granted the, the town of Ziklag to live in by the king. And after 16 months in the Philistine territory, David's relieved of his responsibilities. And here at the beginning of chapter 30, we find him and his men making the 60-mile journey to Ziklag from Gath back to the safety of their town and the embrace of their family. But when they arrive there, they discover something that they could not have imagined. Because all that is left of Ziklag is rubble and smoke. David discovers that the city has been arsoned, the women and the children are all missing, and the narrator tells us something that David doesn't yet know, which is this has been perpetrated by the Amalekites. Anytime you come across the Amalekites in the Old Testament, you can pretty much count on it being bad news. One of my Old Testament seminary professors used to put it like this. He said, how do you know that an Amalekite is lying? His lips are moving. The story of Israel was ever put into a British-style pantomime, which is probably a really bad idea, but bear with me for a second. Every time the Amalekites would appear on stage, the audience would be encouraged to just boo very, very loudly because the Amalekites were a constant, constant thorn in the side of Israel. They hated the Israelites over and over again. They attacked the Israelites, and their cheap, cowardly preference for the timing of those attacks was when Israel was at her most vulnerable and defenseless. And here they'd done it again. While David and his men were away, they invade Diklag, they set it on fire, and they capture the women and children probably to take them and sell them into slavery. So David and his men arrive home to this atrocity, and we read that they weep, and they weep, and they weep until they can weep no more. Just when David must have thought things couldn't get any worse, they do. Look at verses 5 to 6. David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. You know, when something catastrophic happens, when an atrocity occurs, there's this human proclivity to want to blame someone. And David discovers on this occasion that that someone, in the eyes of his 600-strong army, was him. This was his fault. He was their leader, and he, he, should, they, he shouldn't have left their town unprotected. And so in their bitterness and their rage, the soldiers blame David. They lobby one another to stone him. They literally want to kill him. Now, I'm guessing that none of us here know exactly what it would be like to return home and find your town in rubble, your families captured, And then on top of that, be blamed for it such that people want to murder you. 
But most of us would probably say there have been days in our life when you've asked yourself, like David must have here, could things possibly get any worse? Sometimes part of the angst on those days is that you've been unfairly blamed by those around you for what's going on. Maybe that's happened for some of us this week. And in those situations, what do you do? Or to get more specific, how do you resist the urge to retaliate against those around you who are obviously hurting, albeit they're taking their hurt out on you? How do you show compassion to those people rather than retaliate? Or how do you, in the words of Frederick Beekner's quote in the order of worship today, how do you develop the capacity to feel what it is to live inside somebody else's body, somebody else's skin, and see life from their perspective? Well, here's what David did, verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is one of those phrases where if, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you read the Bible regularly, you probably say, oh, I've, I know what that is, strengthen yourself in the Lord, I see that all the time, and you just keep, moving, keep reading. But it's actually one of those phrases where it's helpful just to hit the pause button occasionally and say, well, what exactly does that mean? And if you hit the pause button here, you actually discover three helpful aspects about what David does here to strengthen himself rather than to get defensive or retaliatory but rather instead to lead with compassion. First thing that David does is he turns to the Lord who is personal. You notice that? David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. I've had conversations with people over the years, and they will tell me, well, yeah, I believe in God too, but when I press them a little, it's little more than an intellectual assent to some supernatural being. Nothing personal there. There's nothing of assurance there. And that's really not going to cut it when the significant crises in your life come. But when you can say the Lord is my God, when you can say not just the Lord is a shepherd, but the Lord is my shepherd, it makes all the difference in the world. Strengthen himself in the Lord. David turns to the God who is personal. Secondly, David here would have remembered God's promises. Back in chapter 23, 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan, in further demonstration of his friendship and commitment to David, goes way, way, way out of his way to find David in the wilderness and to encourage him. And the exact phrase used in 1 Samuel 23 to describe that encouragement was that Jonathan, quote, strengthened David's hand in God. And the narrator tells us how Jonathan did that. He, he reiterated the promises of God previously made to David. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you're a, a committed follower of Jesus Christ, you have all sorts of promises that God has made to you, that I will never leave you or forsake you, that God works all things together for good for those who love him, that at all times the Lord is near and many many more. On that occasion, Jonathan reminded David of God's promises. On this occasion, David reminds himself to possess the strength for compassion in all circumstances. You and I need to retain and regain the right perspective by rehearsing in our hearts and our minds the promises of God that never fail. That second way that David strengthens himself relates then to the third way 
verses 7 to 8, where David draws near to God for help. Look at those verses. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. The ephod was used by the high priest to receive God's answer to inquiries. In other words, it, it was the provided means of access to God's presence and to his wisdom. You and I don't have an Abiathar. We don't have an ephod. We actually have something way, way better. Because according to the writer of the book of Hebrews, we have a great high priest, the great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, to whose throne of grace we are encouraged to confidently come so that we may receive mercy and get this, find grace to help in time of need. We may not get precise answers to our questions like David does here, but we get to constantly receive perfectly timed grace for what we need. And to be honest, we probably need that grace way more than we need answers. You and I need grace just to keep going in life. We need grace certainly to be able to demonstrate compassion when we feel least like showing it. So in order to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, in order that we might show better compassion, we learn here that we turn to the God who is personal, we remember His promises, and we draw near to Him for help. And when we do so, we are strengthened for this compassion. That brings us then to our second point, the, the eyes of compassion. Abiathar the priest assures David that God would give him victory over those who had performed this atrocity. So David and his men, who perhaps at this point in response to David's compassionate posture of sort of set aside their murderous intentions towards him, they move out from Ziklag and they go to this place called the Brook Besor, about 15 miles south of, of Ziklag. At this point, we're told that 200 of David's men are ex so exhausted when they get to the Brook Besor that they stay there while David and the remaining 400 men press on. Now, remember that, that while we know it was the Amalekites who burned Ziklag and captured the women and children, David doesn't appear to know that at this point. The tribes that made raids and burned towns didn't tend to leave calling cards in the ashes. But David was about to find out not only who had done this, but where they were. And he finds this out through a rather unexpected source. Look at verses 11 to 13. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? So here you have David and his men completely focused on this mission to rescue their wives and their children, to defeat whoever had wiped out their town and taken their families hostage. But on their way, they come across this young dehydrated Egyptian. And it turns out he's going to prove very helpful to their mission. But notice that before David asks him any questions regarding that, his first concern when the men bring him to him is to take care of this man's needs, to feed him, to give him water. David understood that compassion isn't worth the paper that it's written on unless it results in action, no matter who the person is in need. 
Listen to what the African Bible commentary says regarding this verse. It says, quote, this incident reminds us not to be so focused on the big things we want to do for God that neglect the small things and the seemingly unimportant people. God has a place for them and his plans as well. Indeed, our success may hinge on their contribution, end quote. Or to put it another way, no matter what we're going through or doing, God calls on us to see everyone around us through the eyes of compassion. Turns out that science backs up the biblical perspective that God has designed each of us to look at the people around us with eyes of compassion. Susan Cain's recent book, Bittersweet, she references the research of the Berkeley psychologist Dacher Keltner, which focused on the vagus nerve, which is the biggest bundle of nerves in our body. Turns out it's a rather important nerve bundle. It controls our breathing, our sex drive, our digestion. But Keltner also discovered that our vagus nerve also responds when we see other people in distress. That is, it reacts to the sorrow of others. The vagus nerve triggers compassion. In her book, Susan Cain references a video produced by the Cleveland Clinic Hospital to train its caregivers in empathy and compassion. The video shows random people walking the corridors of the hospital, people whom you or I might just normally walk past without thinking twice. However, in the video, we see captions below each of these people describing what they were experiencing at that moment. Some of the captions reflect joyful things. Just found out he's going to be a father for the first time. But most of them are sorrowful, going to say goodbye to her father for the last time. Just found out he has a malignant tumor. It's a very moving video, and Cain says that now as she walks through the world, she notices people and she thinks, I wonder what their caption is. I've actually found that to be a helpful way myself to just try to help myself see people better through eyes of compassion, just like David sees this young Egyptian with compassion here. So we've thought about the strength for compassion, we've thought about the eyes of compassion, but really undergirding both of those and what we need for both of those is our third point, which is the compassion of the gospel. And David asks the dehydrated and now rehydrated Egyptian where he is from. It turns out that he had been a slave of an Amalekite master who had dis- Uh, disposed of him when he was sick. However, he's able to tell David of the places the Amalekites had raided, including Ziklag. David promises immunity to the Egyptian if he will uh, take him to the Amalekites and their captives, and so off they go. David, remember, only has 400 of his men at this point. They're probably going to be greatly outnumbered, but when you're armed with the promises of God, that doesn't really matter. They arrive at the Amalekite camp, They they discover there's a party in full swing, there's eating, there's drinking, there's dancing, and therefore there's an army there entirely vulnerable to a surprise attack. These Amalekites were sitting ducks for David's army. Before too long, they are dead ducks. The Amalekites are struck down, and David recovers everything, all the wives, all the kids, all the plunder. But that's not the end of this story. Because David returns from the victory uh, over the Amalekites, but back to the brook Besor, 
where he's greeted by the 200 men who had remained there for rest and recovery due to their exhaustion. And it soon becomes clear that the 400 men who had gone with David and fought were feeling less than compassionate and charitable to those who had stayed behind. Look at verse 22. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So some of the men who had fought with David seemed to be taking the line of whoever did not fight doesn't deserve to eat. That might sound like an argument for some kind of justice, but David will have none of it. Here's his response in verses 23 to 24. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. David puts an end to their scheming with this remarkable blend of warmth. He calls them, my brothers, a a blend of warmth and logic and authority. But his basic argument here is theological in nature. And it's this. He says to them, everything you have is a gift from God. These troublemakers were working out of a mindset that saw what they had as a reward for their efforts, for their work. And David tells his men, this isn't stuff that you've achieved. This is what God has given you. It's a gift. It's all of grace because everything you have, you've received from God. It's all from the hand of the God of compassion. Eugene Peterson wrote that he never understood why the brook Besor doesn't rank up alongside other well-known biblical places like Bethel and Bethany and and Galilee and even Calvary. Not only does the word Besor mean gospel, mean good news, but what happened here at the brook Besor is the very epitome of the gospel because our salvation and the forgiveness of our sins, and the restoration of our relationship with God. It's all a gift, isn't it? It's all by grace that's received through faith. It's all due to the compassion of God. Peterson wrote that one of his friends, who was so taken by the gospel of 1 Samuel 30, this this last part, would sometimes sign her letters, yours at the brook Besor. And you and I would do well to spend a little time at this brook every now and then, because this is where science's explanations can't help us. If empathy and compassion are simply a biological reaction of the vagus nerve, then how do you explain this large contingent of David's army refusing to show compassion to the 200 who stayed at the brook? Or why is it that you and I so frequently suffer from compassion fatigue? We see the needs here in the city or the needs throughout the world. Or we hold back compassion until we feel that a person is somehow worthy of it. Or we justify passing by a proverbial dehydrated Egyptian because we're on what we've judged to be a much more important mission. The reason we lack compassion in those situations is because we've believed the lie that the good life means taking care of number one. 
that the good life means getting my needs met and that people get what they deserve and so I'm under no obligation to assist them. We forget what David tells his men here, that everything that we have is a gift from God. It's all grace. I wondered this week if David had, or if Jesus had this chapter in mind when he told a couple of his parables. The parable of the worker, workers in the vineyard in Matthew chapter 20. Master of a house hires laborers for, for his vineyard. Some of those workers start at the very beginning of the day. He agrees a wage with them. They go to work. But then through the day, he hires other workers at different points in the day until even at the 11th hour, 11 hours after the first worker started, he hires some more. And then at the very end of the day, he pays them all the same wage. And perhaps not surprisingly, there is much protesting from those who were hired at the start of the day. And Jesus says, the master said, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Because that's the grace and the compassion of our God. And then there's the parable, the famous parable in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus, in a sense, substitutes this dehydrated Egyptian for a beaten up Israelite in a ditch. And scandalously for Jesus' audience, it's a despised Samaritan who helps him whereby Jesus radically defines, redefines who your neighbor is to whom you should show compassion. He says, basically, your neighbor is anyone you would receive help from if you were lying, dying at the side of a road. But of course, Jesus didn't just tell stories of compassion. His own mission was a mission of compassion. The English hymn writer Noel Richards put it like this in one of his hymns, Filled with compassion for all creation, Jesus came into a world that was lost. There was but one way that he could save us, only by suffering death on a cross. David in this chapter risks his life to save those taken hostage by the Amalekites. But our greater David, Jesus himself, gave his life to save us who have been taken hostage by the world and the flesh and the devil. Compassion, wrote Frederick Buechner, is the sometimes fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside someone else's skin. Compassion for Jesus was the fatal commitment to take on human skin, to find out what it was like to live in this world, and then to die in our place and rise again, because again, as Frederick Buechner wrote, his joy would not be complete until there was joy for you and for me as well. That's the compassion of Jesus for us. That's the compassion of the gospel. God's compassion for us does not have a sell-by date. In the words of a more familiar hymn I imagine to you, great is thy faithfulness. Thou changest not, thy compassions they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. His compassions never expire, they never run out, they never wear out or fail. Last week, the man who was probably the biggest influence on my ministry died at the age of 89. 
Jim Fraser and I served together in a church, uh, Ballywillan Presbyterian Church in Portrush, Northern Ireland, late 1990s into the early 2000s, during which time he was a mentor and a teacher and a model and a friend to me. But at his funeral on Tuesday that I watched online, one of his sons recounted how Jim was one of the first Irish ministerial students to make the journey to the States for seminary, 1955. He took the boat from Cork, Ireland to here in New York City, and for the next three years he studied at Princeton Seminary. His final year there, Jim served as assistant pastor at at Rockaway Presbyterian Church in New Jersey. And in 1959, he preached his final sermon there before returning to Ireland, and in that sermon, he, he reflected back on the time that he had left Ireland to come to America. He spoke of, of both the excitement of that time and the apprehension of the time, the, the apprehension of leaving everything that was familiar at home and going to a place where he didn't know anybody. But as he disembarked from the ship here in New York, all those anxieties came to the fore until when he stepped off the gangplank, someone grasped his arm and said, is your name Fraser? There's a friend of yours waiting here for you. The closing words of Jim's sermon that day were these. He said, Some t- someday, when the call comes for that other journey to the heavenly home, there will be no concern, for I know I will hear those words again. There's a friend of yours waiting here for you. And that's true for every follower of Jesus, because his compassions they fail not. As he has been, he forever will be. And when you know that compassion, when you've really experienced that compassion, it only fuels your compassion for others, which in turn will enable you to experience more deeply what it is to live the good life. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your compassion. Jesus, we thank you for how you modeled that compassion and you died out of compassion for us. May we take this all in, including David's example, such that we might be more compassionate people as your people here on this earth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.